0: Hello, and welcome back to The Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. I'm Zaid Wahab, and today we will continue our discussion of the second fitna by focusing on the volatile cities of Iraq. It would be difficult and tedious to catalogue the different interests vying for control in Kufa and Basra, but lucky for us, a unique leader suddenly emerged to provide us with the perfect vantage point from which to observe the evolving chaos in the East. Get ready to learn about Mukhtar Al-Taqafi in episode 23, The Chosen One. We've covered a decent chunk of it, you can probably appreciate how much more fractured the Ummah was by the second fitna than it had been in the first. Sure, the Qurayshi factions were the same, Umayyads, Hashemites, and the tribe's other elders trying to force their way back into the rotation, but now there were Karajites, city associations, and tribal coalitions to contend with as well. Last time we covered how Marwan and his Qahdani allies reconquered Syria and then Egypt with lightning speed, something the Umayyads could only achieve because of their history in charge of both provinces. During that time, they had every incentive to cultivate local ties, and these came in handy now that they were once again challenging for control. The other parts of the caliphate never got the same kind of attention, and their societies became considerably more divided. Nowhere was this truer than in Iraq, which the Umayyads had always ruled using a divide-and-conquer style as opposed to the generous patronage they used to reward loyalty with in Syria and Egypt. This difference in treatment even had an impact on the resurgent tribal tensions. The ones in Syria were between two powerful coalitions, both patronized by the Caliph, but one jealous of the other's special relationship. In Iraq, the tensions started when the large tribe, the Tamim, got spooked when the Omani Ezd moved into Basra and allied with another large tribe. There were no real coalitions in the East, because the caliphate neither patronized nor encouraged them, making the largest tribes the only social force with any unity. I suppose the Karajites were a kind of exception. They had started as a uniquely Iraqi phenomenon after the stalemate between Ali and Muawiyah at Safin, but had since spread to Bahrain and the east of the peninsula. There were multiple, sometimes warring, factions of Karajites, Remember, this was a label the Arabs applied to any tribe that withdrew from the increasingly bloody game of trying to pick a Qurayshi to lead the Ummah. Some Karajites didn't want anything to do with politics. Others withdrew to distant lands where they lived as they saw fit and barely interacted with the Caliphate. But the majority discussed in our sources belonged to four groups, or two really, that wrought havoc on the areas they stemmed from, mainly around Basra, either from Bahrain to itself or the Ahwaz, ex province of Khuzestan, to its east. It is no coincidence that these Karajite hotspots were areas completely neglected by the Umayyads, intentionally or otherwise. The breakdown of Umayyad authority following Yazid's death in 683 thus swelled the ranks of the Karajites as more of these Arabs abandoned the whole concept of having a united state, preferring instead that things revert to the tribal autonomy of their recent past but we will gain a deeper appreciation of the impact the Karajites had as we go along. We're not going to focus on Abd maliks challenge to Ibn Zubayr's growing power today either. Instead, our protagonist will be the unique Mukhtar ibn Abi Ubaid al-Thaqafi. Although the contest between the two Qurayshis will outlive him, Mukhtar's choices will presage two critical developments in Arab history by generations, making him an influential visionary of sorts. He was the first to recognize the martial potential of non-Arab Muslims, and he was bold enough to introduce religious innovations designed to give him clear political advantages. So who was this Mukhtar? He was a son of the main tribe of the city of Ta'if, neighbor of Mecca and its pre-Islamic rival, the city of Al-Mughira and Ziyad bin Abi Sufyan. His clan had joined the armies sent to Iraq by Omar and he was raised by his uncle in the ex-capital of the Sasanids, Tessifon, or Medain, after his father's death. These are pretty much all the details we have about Mukhtar before Yazid's rise to Caliph in 681, when he was around 60 years old. He lived in Kufa then, and we are even told in some contested narrations that he hosted al-Hasan's emissary Muslim bin Aqir. Given this information, it is reasonable to conclude that he was a solid backer of the Hashemites, one of many in the city. It may be worth mentioning that the governor in charge of Kufa before Ubaydallah was Mukhtar's father-in-law, so he may have reasoned that he had a degree of protection. He was out of town when Ubaidullah took over, executed Muslim, and put an end to his rebellion. Mukhtar was arrested upon his return and only released after Ubaydallah felt the need to diffuse Hashemite tensions following the brutal massacre of Al-Husayn at Karbala. Mukhtar was exiled upon his release, and he chose to head to Mecca, either having heard of Ibn Zubayr's nascent challenge to Umayyad authority, or hoping to be of service to the Hashemites. That latter one is unlikely though. The Hashemites wanted nothing to do with politics, and they stayed out of all rebellion after their massacre at Karbala. Unfortunately, we don't know enough about Mukhtar's time in Mecca either. We are told he met with Ibn Zubayr, And suggested that he could be very helpful to his cause as governor of Kufa, arguing that he held considerable sway there. Ibn Zubayr was suspicious of anyone who sought power and preferred to rely on immediate family in any case, so he dismissed al-Mukhtar without much of a second thought. Here we get some disagreement that we shouldn't ignore as it concerns claims about Mukhtar's legitimacy. There are different narrations some say he went to Medina for a while, fought against Yazid's armies, then returned to Kufa, while others that he lingered in Mecca and pledged to Ibn Zubayr. There is no disagreement that he was anti-Umayyad. The real contention is around how much of a Hashemite he was and what attitude the clan itself held towards him. This issue will be all the rage in a few short years, especially as Mukhtar will claim having built strong ties with the clan during his time in the Hijaz. So with unknown, contested, but presumably positive relationships to both Ibn Zubayr and the Hashemites by virtue of his implacable opposition to the Umayyads, Mokhtar did eventually return to Kufa, but only after Ubaidullah had fled to Syria. When he arrived, he found the city in anarchy, with even its tribal elders having a hard time controlling their men. Kufa's many Hashemite supporters were organizing for a rebellion to punish the killers of al Hussein bin Ali. They were referred to as al-Tawwabin or the penitents and were led by a Sulayman ibn Surad who had fought for Ali during the first fitna. One impressive thing about Mukhtar was how he rose to leadership despite lacking noble tribal lineage and in Sulaiman we are given a reminder that the especially schismatic times of the second fitna offered unprecedented opportunities to capable and inspiring men like the pair of Kufans. But anyway, Sulaiman's men were called the penitents because they felt like they had to repent for failing the Prophet's grandson after having encouraged him to come to Kufa. What's interesting is that these men had listened to their tribal elders when Al-Baydallah was around imposing Umayyad control, but now felt free to break with them. Although the Umayyads and the tribal elders competed for control in Iraq, they reinforced one another. And with the failure of Umayyad power came a weakening of the legitimacy of the tribal elders who had either collaborated with it, or otherwise used it to control their own kin. The penitents were only a problem for Mukhtar, because he had hoped to draw the bulk of his support from these very same men. After repeatedly failing to lead them into his obedience, Mukhtar began negging their efforts, telling them that they were doomed to failure. He must have initially been dismissed as a cowardly naysayer, because he started looking for ways of lending his words more weight and before too long he was telling a strange and compelling tale. It started simply enough. Mukhtar claimed he had been sent to Kufa by Muhammad ibn al hanafiyyah Ali ibn Abi Talib's son, half-brother to al Hassan and al-Husayn. It was widely recognized at the time that the Hashemites had understandably stepped back from politics following their massacre. This withdrawal was part of why the penitents felt they had to take the initiative themselves, the other part being their overwhelming guilt at their failure to champion Hussein when he set out for Kufa. Given the clan's political quietism, it wasn't absurd that they would send someone to work on their behalf. After all, Kufa had been a base for the clan ever since Ali first stayed there to fight the Umayyads, and it was where al Hussein was heading before he was killed. And since Muhtar had just recently come back from Mecca, it all sort of held together. This move, claiming to be the agent of the Hashemites, considerably bolstered Mukhtar's influence in the city. So far, there's nothing new though, right? After all, other leaders had sought to inflate their religious legitimacy before. Mukhtar's innovation, however, came when he synthesized the recent history into his religious narrative. Seizing upon the popularity of the idea that Ali bin Abi Talib had been chosen to lead the community by the Prophet, Mukhtar developed it further in ways which justified his authority. We can't be sure when he expounded each detail of the dogma he put forward, but the innovation revolved around this idea that alongside the Holy Word the Prophet had another divine gift. It was a sort of intellect necessary to understand the mysterious words of God, which on their own could bear many meanings and lead people to disagree about the correct course of action. Since God communicated the message of Islam to guide the people of this world, The ability to understand its true meaning had to remain in this world after the Prophet's death, and so it passed to his rightful heir, Ali ibn Abi Talib. After Ali's death it went to Al-Hasan, then Al-Husayn, and the divine knowledge now resided in Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya, who therefore must have a divine purpose on this earth. Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya became the Mahdi, the guided, and only the Mahdi's agent Mukhtar, would enjoy divine favor in his quest to champion the Prophet's clan. That's pretty much it. I think that's a good enough summary of Mukhtar's religious framework. Notice how it justifies all the men the Kufan tribes had championed throughout the Ummah's history, Ali, al Hassan, al Hussein, and that ended with Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya, whose purported agent, could bet, would reliably remain politically inert in faraway Mecca. This of course made it intrinsically attractive to the people of Kufa as it vindicated their previous choices by casting them as the eternal defenders of the Prophet's true heirs and gave them a religious quest or purpose to unite around. Parts of Mukhtar's idea will evolve greatly over time, eventually showing up in various forms in Shiite ideology. Indeed, though somewhat unlikely, parts of it may have already been around and evolving since the first fitna. There are narrations which claim that some of Ali bin Abi Talib's most extreme partisans were from Madain, where Mukhtar had practically grown up, a city his uncle governed. It was the city that literally rioted when Al-Hasan bin Ali stated his readiness to accept his rival's claims to leadership in pursuit of unity, getting stabbed in the thigh with a pickaxe in the ensuing chaos. Finally, it's also the city which narrations seeking to discredit Shi'ism say was the main base of Abdullah ibn Sabah the black Yemeni Jew who was claimed to have single-handedly split the ummah by fabricating tales which weak-minded and resentful folks fell for. So maybe, maybe some of Mukhtar's ideas were inspired from stuff the especially pro-Hashemite Madain folks were already throwing around. How persuasive Mukhtar was when it came to the penitents is difficult to tell, but listen to this. We are told that 16,000 men initially pledged to avenge al-Husayn bin Ali, saying that the shame of failing the Hashemite in his time of need would not be washed away until they punished his killers. When it was time for action, however, only 4,000 rallied with Suleyman to go and fight the Umayyads. It's unclear how much of this is Mukhtar's doing, though. Undeterred by the weak showing, they marched to Syria, stopping by Qarkasiyya, the fort where the Adnani tribes were holed up while they sniped at their rivals. Zufar, the leader of this alliance, welcomed them, and since the two shared the same enemies, he asked them to join his fight instead of heading out to look for trouble with so little planning. But Sulaiman and his men refused, once again citing the urgent nature of the duty which they had to fulfill. I'm not sure how lucky they felt when they ran into just the man they were looking for at a place called Ain al-Warda their ex-governor, Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad. Some narrations claim that Marwan had promised him Iraq if he could reconquer it, his way of showing appreciation for this previously neglected member of the clan. Ubaidullah's leadership had indeed proved useful. He had commanded the cavalry during the all-or-nothing battle at Marj Rahid to great effect, and had taken part in the recent campaigns to retake Egypt and hold off ibn Zubayr's advances into Palestine. The problem was that Ubaidullah had 20,000 troops, facing just 3,000 penitents, as 1,000 had changed their minds at some point during their long march to Ayn al-Warda. When they were asked to surrender, the penitents demanded the Umayyads hand over Ubaidullah for immediate execution. They went on to fight bravely, getting the better of their adversaries in the first day of battle, and holding on in the second before being crushed almost down to the last man in the third. This took place in early January of 685. Few of them made it back to Iraq, where news of their bloody last stand in pursuit of redemption once again inflamed Hashemite sympathies in Madain, Kufa, and Basra. Mukhtar capitalized immediately and decisively on this turn of events. He praised the fallen as heroes whose only fault was that they desired justice so fervently that they wouldn't heed his call. Many of those who had reneged on their promises to join Suleiman now made common cause with Muhtar, who began to hype his message of the chosenness of Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya and his own chosenness by proxy even further. These activities caught the eye of Ibn Zubayr, who grew increasingly uncomfortable at the energy this Kufan upstart was fostering in a notoriously pro-Hashemite city. Abdullah ibn zubayr had remained in Mecca ever since Yazid had first become caliph. During this period, he comes off as a severe old man who only trusted a handful of close kin and friends, which was probably wise considering the state the Ummah was in. In April of 685, so just a few months after the defeat of the penitents, he assigned a trusted comrade, Abdullah ibn Mutiyah, as governor of Kufa. And one of the first things ibn Mutiyah had to deal with was Mukhtar's worrisome activities in the city. He invited the man to come explain himself, but Mukhtar kept evading the summons. Some narrations say that Ibn Mutiyah was slow to become suspicious of Mukhtar because the two had fought alongside one another against the Umayyads in defense of Medina a few years back. Mukhtar wasn't just dodging the question. He was biding his time while he amassed support in hopes of taking the city over, something he is claimed to have felt entitled to, even promised by Ibn Zubayr. The key source of support that eventually sealed his advantage came when he managed to win over Ibrahim ibn Malik al-Ashtar, the son of Ali's right-hand man and one of Kufa's most esteemed leaders. Mukhtar's story is littered with conflicting accounts, but how he got the son of al-Ashtar, Ibrahim, to pledge his support is one I think worth fleshing out. See, many were skeptical about Mukhtar's self-serving claims, they didn't necessarily have a problem with the whole idea he was laying out, they just felt like they needed to hear it from Muhammad ibn al himself, who never responded to their letters. There were accusations flying around that Mukhtar had never met the Hashemite, and even more damaging ones about him being rebuffed by the clan when he had tried. When a group of Kufans declared their intentions of making the trip to Mecca to get to the bottom of things, they were aggressively shamed by Mukhtar for their lack of faith in him. We are told in some accounts that Mukhtar forged letters from the Hashemite and that these were questioned at great lengths as they contained hints of their fabrication. Just one example of many other details we won't be getting into. Anyway, we are told that the Kufans who went to speak to Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyyah in Mecca eventually did get an audience, but that the Hashemite was in a somber, uncommunicative mood as always. When they got a brief chance, they asked if Mukhtar was working by his blessing and all Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyyah said in reply was that it was righteous to demand justice for his brothers, but that he personally abhorred violence. The men took this vague response as a wholehearted endorsement, and they made their way back to Kufa. Some narrations say Mukhtar had hired assassins to take them out before they had a chance to reveal what they had learned, but that these were incompetent and failed at their task. When the Kufans announced that Mukhtar was indeed the agent of Muhammad, that they'd heard as much from the Mahdi's own lips, Mukhtar took it all in stride. He immediately chided them for having doubted him, but welcomed them back, saying he hoped others would learn from their efforts and avoid the sin of doubting him altogether. With this proof of his connection to the Hashemites in hand, Mukhtar had an easy time winning over Ibrahim ibn Malik al-Ashtar, and he further amplified his rhetoric about being chosen and holy knowledge and all that. With the support of Ibrahim, Mukhtar felt confident enough to stage a coup against Ibn Mutiya in Kufa, and in October of 685, his supporters rebelled against Ibn Zubayr's governor and overpowered his forces. Ibn Mutiya was allowed to leave the city, some narrations saying Mukhtar himself facilitated the governor's safe departure in hopes of not damaging his ties with Ibn Zubayr beyond repair. Having attained control of the city, Mukhtar accepted pledges of allegiance at the mosque and was declared caliph giving me an excuse to dedicate a whole episode to him. It's time we discuss another component of Mukhtar's growing power at this stage, especially as it will become an important factor in developments some way down the line. It's simple, really. Mukhtar's message attracted support from lots of non-Arab Muslims who existed in especially large numbers around the Iraqi Canton cities. Arabs referred to these Muslims as Mawali, plural form of the Arabic word mawla. You may remember that your mawla was anyone who owed you their loyalty or vice versa. The Arabs used the term for devotees, loyalists, allies, and even slaves, even manumitted ones, as these typically remained by their previous owner's sides as their loyalists even after being freed. When Omar had undertaken the conquest of Iraq, Islam was open to anyone who fought alongside the Arabs, although in effect that mainly meant other nomadic tribes, and any local chiefs who made common cause with the Arabs in order to hold on to their property and position. At no point did the Arabs seek to proselytize nor convert any of the settled populations during the early caliphates. Nevertheless, due to the way taxes were collected in Iraq, many of the poorest farmers preferred to abandon their lands and seek employment in the Canton cities. All non-Muslims had to pay a poll tax of one currency per man, and on top of that, There were the actual taxes, which depended on what one did for a living. Farmers had it the hardest, I think, though I'm not sure. I've come across claims that the tax rate for herdsmen was as high as 20% for a small flock and as low as 2.5% for a large one. I believe the rate for farmers was much higher than 20%. Various rates are reported for craftsmen, making it seem like these were jobs the Arabs had a hard time valuing and therefore taxing. In order for a non-Arab to enter the Iraqi cities, they had to convert, something they could only do with a Muslim sponsor. So they often found some willing clan, became their mullah, and then practiced various professions in town to earn their living. This cemented a real sense of superiority among the Arabs who looked down upon the Mawadi as a servant caste, for example refusing to allow them into their mosques. At that time, The conversion of a non-Arab to Islam was considered at best a gesture of devotion, and at worst one of unwelcome overreach. There are a lot of theories about what exactly attracted the Mawali to Mukhtar's cause. Some say that the power-hungry Mukhtar courted any and all possible audiences, making him the first Arab to try and win their support. Obviously such a development weakened the influence held by the city's traditional power brokers, the tribal leaders. Other narrations stress that Mukhtar was acutely aware of how the tribal elders of Kufa had repeatedly failed their leaders before, and so that in the Mawadi he found a ready alternative. Others still provide a cultural explanation, saying Mukhtar's dogma was derived from motifs that were closer to Persian and Yemeni religious traditions, and therefore intrinsically appealed to these non-Arabs. Of all the explanations offered to us during this highly contentious time for the Ummah, that's the one I have the easiest time dismissing as a thinly veiled lament about the corrupting influence of non-Arab culture. In any case, many non-Arabs joined Mukhtar's movement, and the shift in Kufa upset the city's Arab tribes. Mukhtar was willing to allow the Mawali to fight in his armies not as vassals but as Muslims. They would be entitled to a share of the war booty and a salary from the state. These developments led to deep resentment, no doubt fanned by the tribal leaders who had the most to lose from their diminished influence. While all this was going on, the Umayyads had finally broken through the blockade Qirqasia had imposed on them, and they had taken Musr to the north of Mukhtar's Kufa. Mukhtar sent a couple armies to deal with them, the second a larger one, led by Ibrahim ibn Malik al-Ashtar, which included the bulk of his non-Arab supporters. A couple days after these Mawali had marched north with Ibrahim, sometime in July, 686, Kufa's tribal elders stage a coup against Mukhtar. They blamed him for empowering their servants and letting them share in their wealth. Mukhtar did have a personal guard, all Mawali, we are told, and he managed to hold on long enough for a messenger to bring Ibrahim and his army back to Kufa. He punished those who had broken their pledges by transgressing against him, and then sent Ibrahim back north to fend off against the encroaching Umayyads. Okay, here's what you need to know about the Battle of Khazir. The Umayyads had only made it to Iraq by finally bypassing the Adnani fortress of Kirkassia. They had a big army of about 60,000 we are told, some from an unusual local ally, a Adnani tribe of Mesopotamia. Serving in this Umayyad army was pretty much every commander the Iraqis blamed for the killing of al-Husayn bin Ali, especially Abaydallah ibn Ziyad, who was an overall command. The two armies met in August in the Kurdish heartlands near the Zab River. Ibrahim only commanded between twelve and 20,000 troops, and had a much smaller cavalry contingent, but he spurred his men on with reminders of the many indignities Ubaidullah had inflicted upon them. I doubt he would have made much of an impact had the Adnani tribe allied to the Umayyads not chosen that very battle to abandon their cause to deadly effect. Albaidullah and all the leaders were killed when Ibrahim led an assault just as their flank abandoned them. We are also told that the numbers killed by the Iraqis were dwarfed by the number of Syrians who drowned trying to cross the river back. This downright miraculous victory earned Mukhtar great prestige, not to mention extended his domain to its largest size, depicted in the map posted with this episode on the show's website, thecaliphs.com. Mukhtar rewarded Ibrahim by making him governor of the north while he stayed in Kufa and expounded his new religious theory and cultivated more support. There are some colorful stories around this time, One narration says that Mukhtar's teachings made such strange claims about Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya that the Hashemite became curious and wanted to come check for himself whether it was true that Mukhtar was making stuff up and set the record straight. Hearing about ibn al-Hanafiyya's plan, Mukhtar announced that this visit would be the perfect opportunity to prove that the existence of the Mahdi was necessary and that he would therefore survive being stabbed repeatedly by any sword. When Muhammad ibn al hanafiyyah heard this unsubtle suggestion, he decided that whatever was going on in Kufa, it wasn't worth the risk, and he changed his mind about his visit. But getting back to things that probably happened, ibn al-Zubayr became agitated at Mukhtar's sudden success, especially since the renegade had declared himself caliph. In order to counter Muqtar's influence in Iraq, ibn al-Zubayr appointed his well-regarded brother Mushab as governor of Basra. He also imprisoned Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya in order to forestall any possibility of a Hashemite rebellion in the Hijaz. But Mukhtar made good use of that opportunity by sending a large army to Mecca and busting the son of Ali out of jail. Mukhtar didn't want him back in Kufa. And so with nowhere else to go, Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya went to stay in Ta'if. It wasn't long after his arrival in Basra in mid-686 that Mus'ab heard from the tribal leaders of Kufa begging him to help them get rid of Mukhtar. Despite all he had done for the city, Mukhtar's reliance on the Mawadi had made him intolerable to these Arab leaders. They didn't like sharing the wealth and they didn't like being put on par with the people they had defeated. It didn't matter whether they were Muslim or not, as conquered peoples they were considered lessers by the Arab tribes, or at the most others, with no right to claiming equality. A arguing that Islam made them an equal to the Arabs was considered an abuse of a loophole, and the Mawali were often accused of converting only to avoid the poll tax, an evasion which rarely worked anyway. Some narrations report that as many as 10,000 Kufans had left for Basra to flee Mukhtar's hated policies. With them on his side, Mus'ab liked his chances, especially as it seemed like Mukhtar was too focused on his cult of personality, and not attentive enough to how erosive his support from the Mawali was to the support from his Arab audience. Mukhtar had also just won a very costly victory against a huge Umayyad army, meaning that he was weak now and would only be getting stronger as time went on. Mus'ab also had access to Ibn Zubair's most skilled general, Muhallab ibn Sufra, who was successfully beating back Karajites around Basra. This guy was a beast, and we'll discuss his triumphs a little more some other episode when we're not already 20 minutes in. Masab decided a good first move would be to ask the Kufans to recruit collaborators from their hometown to undermine its defenses. It wasn't long before Mukhtar caught wind of the general plan, and he figured a preemptive attack would be his best course of action. To prepare his supporters for war, he preached that victory was certain and, as it had already been foretold in a prophecy revealed to him. We are told this pretty casually, so it had either become run-of-the-mill for Mukhtar to claim unique religious knowledge, or maybe it's just another attack on him. He is reviled in many narrations, mostly for diluting Arab power to build his own, but also the religious stuff. Our sources meticulously list the names of the leaders in the two battles which followed, but unfortunately we are not given any idea of the sizes of their armies, probably because they involved so many non-Arabs. The first was not too far from Basra, and in it, Mukhtar's forces were devastated. The Mawali were just nowhere near as battle-hardened as the Arabs Mus'ab brought to the fight, and the Kufans held a real grudge towards their former servants. Mus'ab thought he could make it to Kufa quickly by sending boats up the Euphrates, but Mukhtar slowed him down by damming the river upstream, gaining some time to prepare his defenses. How much more time, we are not told, and these battles must have both taken place in the second half of 686. Mukhtar's armies did a lot better with him there to inspire them, and we are told that at the second battle, the Mawali inflicted great casualties upon their Kufan foes. They were already at a severe disadvantage, however, and were defeated before long. The aftermath was bloody in all narrations. Some say Mus'ab had 700 Arabs and 7,000 Mawali executed, while others that he put to death 6,000 Arabs and all the Mawali. Muhtar fortified himself in a castle with a couple hundred supporters, and they held out for months before being forced to make a last stand in which they were all slain. With this final victory, Mas'ab became governor of both Kufa and Basra, and after Ibrahim ibn Malik al-Ashtar flipped to ibn Zubayr's side, he had won all of Iraq to his brother's cause. The quick defection of Ibrahim hints that he was unhappy with Mukhtar, whom he neglected to assist even during the latter's besiegement. This abandonment by his key Arab supporter was what brought Mukhtar down. The many grievances of the Mawali had provided a way for marshalling their support, but it just wasn't enough to hold power on its own, and it seemed to alienate the Arabs who wanted no part in fighting alongside men from the settled populations. The death of Mughdar left only two leaders vying for leadership of the Ummah, Abdul-Malik ibn Marwan in Damascus and Abdullah ibn Zubayr in Mecca. The Umayyad held Syria and Egypt, while Iraq and the peninsula were ibn Zubayr's. And next time, We'll talk about how the two went about resolving the second fitna, here on the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power.